Good morning, WSBC. It's really a morning. pleasure to be here with you again this morning to share God's word, to worship with you, to see many familiar faces and friends. Mary and I are always very um, thankful when we can come and worship with you and uh, see many people that we know, but also meet new friends. One of the most common misunderstandings about the Christian faith that is that it is faith for the weak, that it is a religion for people who need a crutch to make it through life. We live in a world that prizes boldness, that prizes courage, that worships people who can lift themselves up by their own bootstraps. Just think of some of the uh, many well-known entrepreneurs and business people uh, in this world. Some people like Steve Jobs, maybe Bill Gates, George Soros, Jack Ma, many names that we probably know and people who are successful in life because they've had a lot of courage in their industry. Or just imagine the past couple of weeks, in fact, and many of you have been watching the Olympic Games and hearing stories about these athletes, even behind the scenes, many of them who have striven so hard to make it to that, to that point in their career and then on the world stage accomplishing something great. We love stories like that. We, we honor people like that. And it's true, in this world, um, we can accomplish a lot of really good things as human beings. But friends, in this life, if you simply trust yourself and your own strength, you will ultimately fail. If you have the motto in life, I can only have faith in myself, that faith will ultimately fail you. Friends, the, the Bible and the Christian faith teaches us what true boldness looks like, what true faith looks like. And it doesn't look like personal achievement and personal glory. What does true boldness look like? Well, turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 14. We'll be looking at that this morning, starting at verse 6. And you can find a copy of the sermon text in your bulletin on page 11. We'll be looking at Joshua chapter 14, starting at verse 6 through the end of the chapter in verse 15. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal. And Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God of Kadesh Barnea, concerning you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said. These 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now behold, I am this day 85 years old. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then, for war and for going and coming. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. 
It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. Then Joshua blessed him, and he gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. And therefore Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. Now the name of Hebron formerly was Kiriath Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim. And the land had rest from war. Praise God for his holy word. Well, friends, I think the main idea of this text, and therefore the main idea of this sermon, is this. Trust your own strength and fail. Be bold and trust God's strength. Well, friends, we need to take a step back here a moment because we've just dove into the middle of the book of Joshua. And so we need to have a little context about where we are in redemptive history. And so I think it'd be good for us to kind of review where we are up until this point uh, in the first six books of the Bible. Now the first first five books, really, the first six books of the Bible can be summarized with one main theme. I think it's helpful for us as we look at this passage. And that main theme can be summarized as this. God has said, I will create a people, I will call a people, and they will dwell with me. People and land, people and land. God is going to call a people and he is going to dwell with them in a land. And so if you look at starting the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, you see that played out from the first pages. God creates a people, Adam and Eve, and a garden for them to live with him. And we know from the Bible in Genesis chapter three that uh, Adam and Eve sin and they fall and they're cast out of the garden, but God still remains true to that promise that he will be a God to his people and they will dwell with him. And so we see in patriarchs and other faithful servants like Abraham, God reiterates that promise. I will be your God and you will be my people and you will dwell in the land with me. See that throughout Genesis. So then we go to the book of Exodus. We see God's people are actually far from the land. Uh, They're in slavery in Egypt. In the book of Exodus, we see God raise up a man, Moses, free his people from the land of slavery in Egypt and they're led out into the wilderness. So again, God is calling his people to be with them, and God is with them as they go through the wilderness. And then you flip again to uh, the third book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. And the book of Leviticus can be summarized very easily. It's really about, here's a holy God. How do we live with him as a holy people? God is preparing them to live in the land with him as a holy God. And so we get to the next book, Numbers, the book of Numbers. And Numbers is a crucial point in this story. Because there, God has led his people up to the borders of that promised land, the land of Canaan. And they're ready to go in. God has said, I will bring you here. Just trust me. You can take this land. And we know uh, from Numbers 13 and 14, the people get up to the land, and when it's time to enter and take it, their faith falters. And they don't believe those promises that God had made made to them. And so God, uh, as punishment, he says, this generation will die in the wilderness, and for another 40 years, uh, people will be in the wilderness while the next generation comes, and they will take the land. And so we see that in Numbers, and then going into the next book, Deuteronomy, Moses, their leader, gives final instructions to the people and says, this next generation, remember God's promises. Remember he has said he will be with you, and he will take you into the land. And so that next generation comes up, and Moses is about to die, and he appoints his successor, successor Joshua. 
And that's where we are now in the story, in the book of Joshua. Uh, Moses has died. He's appointed Joshua as the next leader. The next generation of Israelites is there, about to take the land. And the book of Joshua starts out that way. And now here we are, it's about in the middle of the book of Joshua. Joshua has led them into the land, and the conquest is finally underway. They are in the land, defeating their enemies. But now, in this part, the land is starting to be allotted to some of those tribes, even though the land is not fully taken. And so if you were to look back a few verses in this chapter, you'd see uh, Joshua has begun to allot the land to the people as God had promised and prescribed. And so that's basically where we are in this story. However, there is a problem lurking in the background in our text today. And that is, as I said, the land is not yet taken. There still is a conquest to be, to be completed. And the problem lurking in the background here of our text is that the Israelites should keep going in this conquest. They should not tire. They should not lose confidence. But they, they are starting to. And lurking in this background that we need to know this context is that the Israelites are starting to lose some of their zeal to conquer the land. And so what they need, what Israel needs at this point is a man, a man of bold faith, to step up and defeat God's enemies so that the land can have rest from war. They need someone to rally the people so that they can continue in this conquest, that someone with bold faith to defeat God's enemies. And that's what we have here in this text today. We have a man, Caleb, with bold faith. And I want us to see in this text today four things about bold faith that we can learn from Caleb. Four things about bold faith. And the first thing we can see right away in verses 6 to 8. Look again there in the text. We can see that faith requires boldness amidst unbelief. Verses 6 through 8, you'll see that Caleb is a man of bold faith because he goes to Joshua and he recalls, he retells uh, with Joshua that story of how he and others were ready to take the land 40 years ago. So Caleb goes to Joshua and recalls how uh, he and Joshua were among 12 spies sent out from Israel to go and spy out the land 40 years ago as they were prepared to go take the land. You, you remember the story from Numbers 13 and 14. And these 12 spies go into the land. And they're meant to bring back a favorable report. That the land is good, just as God had promised, and that they can take the land with God's help, and with God leading them and fighting for them. And so, Numbers 13 and 14, those 12 spies come back, and 10 of them say, look, we, we've been in this land. We can't take it. Uh, the people there are too big. They got these giants there named Anakim, and they're like, we're like ants compared to them. We're like, we're like an American 10-year-old ping pong player going against a Chinese national team. So 10 of them just totally deflate Israel. And that's what Caleb says here. You know how these 10 spies deflated. They melted the hearts of the people and said, we can't do this. But there were two spies that were sent that said, we can't do that. One of those spies was Joshua, and the other one was Caleb. Caleb said, no, we can do this. Caleb and Joshua said 40 years ago, 45 years ago, we can do this. We can take the land. And so at that time, 45 years ago, Caleb, in the midst of all that unbelief that was around him, when everybody was saying, we can't do this, Caleb was saying, yes, we can. We just need to be bold and trust God and his promises. 
And friends, that's what faith often requires. Your faith as a Christian often will require boldness amidst unbelief. It will often require you to stick out from the crowd, to be a square peg in a round hole. If you're a Christian teenager or young person, you know what this is like. You know as a Christian young person, the peer pressure around you from people who want you to do something that you know is wrong. When your classmates or your peers are saying, uh, we should do this and you know that it's against God's will. If you're a Christian business person, you know what this is like when your boss is constantly asking you to work overtime, it's taking you away from your family. Your boss is asking you to work on Sundays you can't be here at church. You know what this is like to stand up in bold faith, even though it might cost you your job or force you to request a transfer or even to resign. Or if you're a Christian parent making decisions about your child's education, you know what this is like to stand up in bold faith and say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put my child in a Christian school or I'm gonna educate my child at home. You know the boldness it takes to do that. Friends, faith often requires a boldness amidst unbelief. But we gotta be careful here. Because as Christians, at this point we often become practical non-Christians. What do I mean by that? When we hear bold faith, many of us, myself, and I'm sure many of you, sometimes feel like, well, I don't feel like I have bold faith. I, I don't feel today like I'm very strong. I don't feel like I, I, it's, it's, it's up to me. I, I don't feel like I have it in me. Well, friends, what I want to encourage you as a Christian when you feel those things that remind you that faith is not based on your feelings. Faith is not based on how you feel each day. Now, faith is based on something much bigger, something of a, uh, a much deeper uh, fundamental truth. Now, faith is not based on feelings. It needs to be tied to something. And that's what we see next here in this passage. Now, bold faith is found by clinging to God's promises. It's the second thing I want us to see here. That bold faith is found by clinging to God's promises. Now, if you were to scan this passage again, which I encourage you to do and you have it in front of you, just look again at how many times Caleb says something like, God the Lord has said. Did you notice that? Just look again with me through this passage and notice how many times. There's some at least five times when Caleb says, the Lord has said, verse 6, you know what the Lord said to Moses. Again, in verse 10, the Lord has kept me alive just as he said. And again in verse 10, the Lord spoke this word to Moses. And then again in verse 12, so now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. And again in verse 12, I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. And so you notice that how many times Caleb relies on, looks to trust in what the Lord has said. That's what faith does. That's what bold faith does, is it claims to what the Lord has said. Not basing on what I feel, but on what the Lord has said. And so God promised, God made promises to Caleb 45 years ago. Numbers 14. 12 spies come back. And God promised to those two faithful spies, Joshua and Caleb, that they would see the land. The rest of the generation would die out. 
God promised to Caleb and Joshua they would see the land. You see in verse 9, Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever. And we know from Numbers 14 and Deuteronomy 1, the context there, it's actually the Lord who spoke that through Moses. And Caleb had to wait 45 years for those promises to come true. Caleb had to cling a lifetime to God's promises. He's 85 years old now. And he's had to trust in those words from the Lord. And friends, that's the definition of faith, isn't it? Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, conviction of things not seen. Caleb is a man of faith, of bold faith, because he was clinging to those words from the Lord. Friends, in this world, there are a lot of things out there that want you to trust their word. But you know you can't trust them. You know you can't trust every word you see on social media. Uh, you know you can't trust every report produced by scientists. Uh, you know you can't trust everything you hear from politicians. And you can't even trust every word from the fact checkers who are supposed to fact check those politicians. So friends, there is a place where we can trust every single word. We can trust every single word we hear from our Lord God. If you're a Christian, you live by faith by clinging to those words. And friends, as Christians, we, like Caleb, are clinging to the promise of a land, of dwelling with the Lord, of a future rest. We, like Caleb, are trusting that although this world is filled with enemies now, although this world may seem to be in the grasp of our enemies, we know, we trust, we believe God's word that one day Christ will come again and defeat all of his enemies, and he will bring us into true and final rest with him. And friends, that's going to take a lifetime for you to learn and believe. I don't know how long you'll live, maybe 85 years, maybe more. But I know it'll take you a lifetime to cling to those promises. And that's what bold faith does. Cling to God's promises. That's what we see in Caleb here. You see that 45 years has gone by in the interim and his faith is still strong. And it's not just strong, actually, because he's clinging to God's promises. Notice, it's also possible for Caleb to have strong, bold faith because, number three, the third thing to see is that faith maintains perspective. Faith maintains perspective. Looking at verses 10 and 11. Caleb is, is looking back in verses 10 and 11. He's looking back over the past 45 years, and he's surveying everything that the Lord has done, everything how the Lord has been faithful to him. Every step of the way, God has been with Caleb. Did you notice that? Look again here. Caleb says, God kept Caleb alive for 40 years in the wilderness while that previous generation of Israelites died off. And not only that, 
It was God who kept Caleb alive for another five years after they arrived in the land. And then Caleb also notices, he says in verse 11, it was God who kept his strength. He says, I'm just as strong and ready to fight as I was 45 years ago when Moses sent me out to spy the land, and I'm ready to fight now as I was then. Can you imagine an 85-year-old going into battle? <laughs> How is that possible? Possible because God kept him alive and God kept his strength. So what's, what's Caleb doing here? He's looking back and praising God and thanking God for what God has done over the course of his life. These amazing things that seemed impossible to him over these years. Friends, you as a Christian... How often do you look back, just over the past year or two of your life, and thank God for the ways that he's been faithful to you? How often do you, as a church, do that? How often do you think, God, I, I over this past year, I, I just couldn't, I, I just wasn't sure if my job was going to continue. God, I, I didn't know if my salary was going to be enough to sustain myself, my family. I didn't know if I could handle the workload. God, I thought it was impossible. I thought it was impossible to stay in this job or even to find a new one. But Lord, you provide it when it seemed impossible. Thank you for providing. Or maybe it's for you, it's, God, this, this past year or two in Shanghai, I have lost some of my closest friends. Some of my best friends have left and they're not coming back and I, it seemed impossible for me to keep going. But God, you sustained me through relationships at this church. You brought new people into my life. You brought, brought people that I could pour into. Thank you for giving me exactly what you knew I needed. Or maybe for this church, God, over the past year or two, we didn't think this church could keep going. COVID, people leaving. How are we possibly going to meet every Sunday? Will we have a place or not? But Lord, you provided. Thank you. It seemed impossible. Lord, we didn't know if we would be able to go if we didn't have a full-time pastor here present. But God, you provided. Thank you for providing what we needed every step of the way. Because you see how doing that, thanking God, blesses God, glorifies Him, gives Him all the praise that's due. But not only that, when Caleb does that, it also prepares him for what's ahead. Because he knows if he looks back and does, and notices how God's done the seemingly impossible, then going forward, God can keep doing that, can't he? And he can keep doing that in your life and in the life of this church. That's what faith does. It maintains perspective. What God has done and what he continues to do in your life. And therefore, we can step out. You can step out in bold faith, trusting God. And that's what we see in these final verses. We'll begin at verses 12 through 15 here. What we see here is step out in bold faith. We see a call to step out in bold faith to trust God. You can trust God's promises. You can maintain faith because you have this perspective. And then because of that, you can step out and hold faith. It's the fourth thing I want us to see here in this passage. 
know, the Israelites have defeated a lot of their enemies in the land. And as I said, that, that final goal of clearing the land has not yet been completed yet. And the sheer difficulty of it is starting to wear on these Israelites. They're starting to lose some of their zeal. The enemies are still there. The task is unfinished. Uh, their enemies still are numerous. They're powerful. They live in fortified cities. And so they're thinking at this point, I don't know if we can clear the whole land. Uh, we know we're supposed to. That's what God has commanded us to do. But it seems like it's being more and more impossible. And then what, what, what comes along? Caleb comes along here and says, no, we can do this. And it's interesting here that uh, you need to know that uh, the Israelites, all of the tribes, were allotted land, as I mentioned earlier. They were not, uh, uh, it wasn't up to them to decide which land they could choose. It was a lot that was cast, and those lots then were determine which piece of land would go to which tribe. Except for two people. Two people could choose where they would dwell in the land. You know who those two people were? Joshua and Caleb. Only they could choose because they were faithful. And so we see here Caleb choose, will choose the most seemingly impossible place to conquer in all these places. He chooses Hebron. Hebron. Why would he choose Hebron? In Hebron, the odds are all stacked against him. All the odds are stacked against Caleb, actually. Think about it. First of all, he's an 85-year-old man, and he wants to go into battle. Uh, that's a big obstacle. But not only that, when he chooses Hebron, Hebron is the most geographically challenging place to conquer because it's in the mountains, it's in the hill country. And if you know anything about battle, you don't want to have to go uphill to attack your opponent. But Hebron, that area is in the mountains. Not only that, but Hebron is where these people, the Anakim, live. Anakim are fierce warriors, they're giants. Uh, these are the people back in Numbers 13 when the spies went into the land and they said, these people are giants. We're like ants compared to them. But these are the people living in Hebron. What we need to see here, what the people of Israel need to see here is that the odds are completely stacked against Caleb. And that is deliberate on God's part. God put the biggest obstacles against Caleb. His age, the place, the people in the land, that's all God's determination. The fact that Hebron is militarily impregnable, the fact that those original scary people in the land are still there, the fact that also the Anakim live in fortified cities, not just in the mountains, that is the plan of God to have the most impossible challenge up against Caleb because the Israelites look at this and they say that is impossible for Caleb to take those places to take that land and God says exactly people say we can't do that God says exactly you can't take the land on your own strength it is impossible for you if you trust in your own strength, you will be defeated. 
You cannot take the land on your own. Instead, trust in me and my strength. Trust in me that I will go before you. Trust in me that I will be your leader and defeat anybody in the land. That's what God wants these people to see. Have bold faith, step out, and trust me that I will defeat these people in the land. And friends, that's exactly what Caleb does. He steps out and asks for this land. He says, you see that place that seems impossible? Yeah, I want that because God is going to fight for me. And that's exactly what happens. You look at verses 13 and 14, and you see how this plays out in some. Caleb goes in, and this land is given to him, and he conquers. You can read later on in Joshua just how that happens and unfolds. And friends, if age wasn't an obstacle enough, geography, people in the land, fortified cities, yeah, God overcomes them all. And just to underscore the point, did you read that last verse? It's not a throwaway verse, I think. You notice that the place name of Hebron used to be named something else. It used to be named after the most fearsome warrior of the Anakim. What God is saying is, yeah, you know your most fearsome warrior? I just beat him with an 85-year-old man. God's victory using the most seemingly fragile person up against impossible odds, demonstrating to the Israelites, this is what you should do. You have a task in front of you that you know you should do. Rely on God for his strength. As a Christian, what is it that you know you should do and you think you can't do it? In your life as a Christian, what do you know you should be doing and you think is impossible? Maybe for you it's killing a lust of money killing your desire for uh, people's praise. Maybe for you it's uh, reconciliation with a friend or family member. You think of reconciling is impossible. You know you should do it. You just can't bring yourself to make the first move. Maybe for you it's controlling your murderous anger. I can't possibly control this rage even though I know it's sinful. Maybe for you it's killing your addiction to porn. You think it has a power over you that can't be conquered. Maybe it's controlling your tongue and lying and gossiping. It's like wildfire in your life. can't be put out. Or restraining your envy of other people and their seemingly clamorous lives eat you up every day. You think it's impossible to overcome these sins, these obstacles. It is if you rely only on your own strength. God is saying, rely on me. Trust me. Trust that I have the strength to overcome these in your life. Look to me and my promises. Depend on me. That's how you will overcome these things. Not relying on your own strength, but on God's strength. Trust me, God says. So friends, what about as a church? There are things that you should be doing or things that you should be thinking and believing, but you think are impossible. 
If it hasn't happened yet, suspected well throughout this year, thinking you know this church should go on and you have the people to do it, the right people, and you might be thinking we can't without certain people here. And you can go on because this is God's church. And he promises that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Trust him and his strength that he is with you and he will fight for you. No matter what restrictions come, no matter how long the borders are closed, no matter how long this virus rages, trust God and he will lead his church. So friends, if you're not a Christian here today, so we welcome you, we're glad you're here. Friends, if you're not a Christian, you might be sitting here thinking, well, this doesn't apply to me, does it? I don't believe in God. Well, friend, I, I, I want to encourage you, I want to tell you, the Bible says every single person is a sinner before God. And every single person should confess that sin before God. And every single person cannot rely on themselves before God and depend on their own righteousness because every single person stands unrighteous before God. Friends, if you're not a Christian here today, I, I, I exhort you. Don't trust in your own strength. Don't leave here today through those doors thinking that you're going to make it through this life if you just have faith in yourself. You won't. You will be defeated. You will go before God as his enemy, not his friend. You will go to him as an Anakim. You cannot stand before him. Confess your sin and trust in Christ as your Savior. Only by looking to Christ in faith and clinging to him can you be forgiven and stand righteous before God. So maybe you've been a, a, not been a Christian. You think it's impossible for me to be a Christian. Exactly. And you can because God is a faithful God. And on his strength, even you can become a Christian. Friends, Caleb points us, shows us what true faith is. But finally, he points us to someone who has perfect faith. He points us to a redeemer, to a conqueror, who never wavered in trusting in God's promises, never wavered from God's will, who perfectly conquered our enemies, and that is Jesus Christ. Friends, Caleb is ultimately not perfect in his faith. The people of God, although they're meant to rally here and trust God, they will ultimately fail in their faith again. They won't conquer the land. The people are going to need another person, another person who can deliver them and bring them into the promised land, into presence with God. And friends, that person is Jesus Christ. That person is Jesus Christ who comes and lives a life perfectly that none of us could. And Jesus comes into the land, calls the people to himself, and says, follow me. I will deliver you from your greatest enemy, from sin, the punishment from sin. Trust in me. I have done it. It is finished, Jesus says. And friends, for us as Christians, we live that life of faith by trusting in Jesus until he comes again for a lifetime, as long as it takes us by clinging to Christ and looking to him in faith. 
And friends, we can do that because Jesus has said that one day he will come again and he will bring us into his kingdom, into his promised land where there will be no more tears, there will be no more sin, there will be no more fear of enemies and we will have perfect and true rest. Friends, believe that promise. Trust in Christ. Don't trust in your own strength. Be bold and trust in God's strength. Please pray with me. God, Father, we do come to you today thankful. We're thankful for the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that in our need for your mercy and grace that you would apply this word to our lives, that we not we would not just be hearers of the word, but we would be doers as well. We ask that as we leave this place, you would give us greater faith, looking to Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.